0: Him. Now that's an important word. We want to notice that this whole conversation came out of a test. And they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two. But one, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man gave his wife to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted. Did you see the change? They said, Why did Moses command? And Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, however, Moses spoke, now Jesus speaks. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, listening in on all this, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, and others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who accepts this should accept it. Uh, By all accounts, uh, marriage has fallen on hard times in our day. I won't uh, dwell on the statistics as you probably know some of these, in 1900 the divorce rate was something like one out of every five marriages ending in divorce. By the 1950s, it had reached something like one out of every four. And today, the national average is one out of three. And in certain areas, it's reached one out of every two marriages that end in divorce. And when you throw in separations and desertions and add those to those figures, it's probably not uh, out of line to say that something like about 50% of America of marriages in this country and in failure. One of the uh, more notable developments that's uh, happened is the active role women have been taking in all of this. Uh, we first spotted this in 1976. A New York-based firm of investigators of missing persons reported that runaway wives outnumbered husbands two to one compared to, get this, 300 husbands to one wife in 1960. According to a more recent uh, study published in the American Law and Economics Review in the year 2000, women currently file more than two-thirds of all the divorce, all the divorce uh, requests, the cases, in the United States. Well, when we include the increasing number of young people who are delaying or opting out of marriage, you get the picture, don't you? Nowadays, uh, one person remarked, love is about sex. Marriage is a gamble, and divorce is just a matter of course. Now before we write that data off and say, well, that's what's happening out there. certainly doesn't happen in here. We're different. I must tell you that George Barna has, in his research, found no significant statistical difference between what happens outside in the culture and what happens inside in the church. In fact, he can only determine a 1% difference difference in all these statistics. And his conclusion is that culture's values have spilled over into the body of Christ. Well, a close reading of our passage today reveals that something similar to that was happening in Jesus' own day. Uh, The devaluing of marriage in the broader Roman culture was also impacting Jewish actions, and attitudes. I have a book in my library entitled Divorce Roman Style, which takes us back to Jesus' day. And the author Susan Tregeri says that one of the main reasons for divorce in Jesus' day was that people simply wanted out. One spouse would notify the other that they no longer be, they want, no longer wanted to be married. And that was that. A divorce was final even if the other spouse didn't receive notification. All that mattered was that one wanted to end the marriage, and it was done. Many in Jesus' day were like the man who believed that the minister at his wedding had given him permission to marry 16 times. Four better, four worse, four richer, four poorer. We don't have uh, statistics uh, for Jesus' day, but we do have the Pharisees' question. And did you see it there? Uh, They asked the question, is it lawful? And here's the key phrase, to divorce for any and every reason. Divorce was a side issue. The Pharisees were using it to trap Jesus into one of those have you stopped beating your wife kinds of questions. Uh, their real agenda was to discredit Jesus' teaching and perhaps to entangle Him in that Herod-Herodias affair. Uh, remember, John the Baptist lost his head over that one. I think they may have been trying to do something with Jesus in this particular question that they raised. However, in answering the question, Jesus is now, in this chapter, given as His Fullest teaching on marriage, and I don't know if you noticed it, divorce, and did you also notice it, the single life. Now those are three big topics that we are about to cover this morning. Uh, we're not going to be able to cover all the things that I'm guessing you could ask questions about, but I think we can get to the essence. Jesus gets to the essence of what Christians believe about marriage and divorce and singleness. And so let's see if we can do that in our time together this morning. Let's talk first of all about marriage, verses 4, 5, and 6. Marriage. Now there's a key phrase here. In the middle of verse 5, I have underlined in my passage, and Jesus said, for this reason. Do you see that expression there? For this reason. Now that's a key phrase. It always makes me, what reason? What reason, for what reason does marriage exist? And it's an interesting answer when you go back and look at the first part of verse four. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made us that way? Do you see that? For this reason we marry. Why do we marry? Because the Creator made us that way. Now, I know our culture is in all kinds of turmoil today, and I think we need to be concerned about that turmoil. But I think there's something built into the very human nature, the the kinds of beings we are, that we're made for marriage. And so I think that marriage is going to be around for quite some time. definition of marriage, uh, the one that I like the best, is given by uh, Ogden Nash, the humorist, in a little mock poem he wrote called The Definition of Marriage. And this goes like this. He says, just as I know there are two Hegens, Walter and Copen, I know that marriage is a union between a man who can't sleep with the window shut and a woman who can't sleep with the window open. Also, he can't sleep until he's read the last hundred pages to find out whether his suspicions about who committed the murder were right, and she can't sleep until he puts out the light. Which, when he finally does, she's still awake and turns on hers, and if he thinks she's going to turn it off before she finds out whether Janice marries the shy young clergyman or the sophisticated polo player, well, he errs. Moreover, just as I am unsure of the difference between Flora and Fauna and Flotsam and Jetsam, I'm quite sure that marriage is the alliance of two people, one of whom never remembers birthdays and the other who never forgets them. And the one refuses to believe there's a leak in the water pipe or the gas pipe and the other is convinced that she's about to asphyxiate or drown. And the other says, quick, get up, close the windows, it's raining in. And the other replies, it's all right, sweetheart, it's not raining in, it's only raining down. That's why marriage is so much more interesting than divorce. Because it's the only known example of a happy meeting of an immovable object and an irresistible force. And that's what marriage is about, isn't it? It's about these different things, this male and this female, this different way of looking at life, this different way of being, this different perspective. Is about these two different things somehow finding a way to come together because of this inner drive, this inner compulsion that God has built within us in spite of all the obstacles, in spite of all the difficulties to form a union, to come together in this thing that we call marriage. And what I like about Jesus is He always gets at the heart of things. And I don't know if you notice that there are about four or five gravitational points in verses 4 and 5 and 6 that absolutely define Christian marriage. By the way, this is that Judeo-Christian ethic that you often hear people talk about and sometimes poo-poo. The Judeo-Christian ethic comes from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And interestingly, Jesus melds them both. And this is what he says. He says, haven't you read? Well, there's the Old Testament that the Creator made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his wife and attach himself to his mother leaving and cleaving between a male did I say mother attach himself to his wife (laughs) and then we move right on to the second topic of divorce don't we (laughs) a man leaves and cleaves he leaves his father and mother and he cleaves to his wife and it says and then the two are united and they become one flesh and the key behind all of that is really this intentional, heartfelt, driven unity. In fact, let me just give you a real simple definition of marriage. Marriage is when a man and a woman are joined before God at the heart. Martin Luther uh, Put it this way, when he was commenting on Genesis, the Genesis passage, he said, you know how Eve was taken from Adam's side? He said, not from the head to be an intellectual sparring partner, not from the feet to be trodden upon, but from the rib, close to the heart, to go through life, arm in arm. Now, Martin Luther married a pretty fiery young lady, her her name was Katrina von Bora. In fact, Martin Luther used to refer to himself as Mr. Katie because she was so strong-willed in the marriage. But his favorite endearing term for her was, Kitty, my rib. Kitty, my rib. I like that. That's a part of what Christian marriage is all about. It's when two people decide to join, not with the intellect ruling, Not trying to trot upon somebody else to see who's the... It's two people that are married in this common union of the heart. Union, union, union is the key word. In fact, verses 4, 5, and 6, that's the word you could use there. Marriage is about union. Now, I'm not going to spend much more time on that, but one of the things I do think we need to argue today, especially for some of our young people, is that that's the essence of marriage. If union is the essence of marriage, I think it's also important for us to recognize that marriage really is a good thing. It comes from a good God. It's given for good reasons. And it accomplishes good things. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's tough. But it really is a good thing. Do I need to remind us of a couple of the good things that come out of marriage? Uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, we're reading that as a staff. Pastor Jason, Pastor Rick, and I. Pastor Rick recommended it to us. It's a wonderful book. Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Keller there gives four evidences for the happiness, the goodness of marriage. And one of them is just simply the happiness that it brings. He says all the surveys tell us that the number of people who are, quote, very happy in marriages are high. It's something like about 60%. Not only that, and this is the quote that Pastor Rick really likes, two-thirds of those people who are unhappy in their marriages, if they will just stick with it and work on their marriage, within five years statistically, they will become happy in their marriage too. So happiness. Second evidence that marriage is good, uh, Keller points to economics. I don't know if you knew this, but... Uh, Keller points to some surprising, what he calls surprising economic benefits of marriage. A 1992 study shows that individuals who were continuously married, retired with 75% more wealth than singles. And even more remarkably, married men earned 10 to 40% more than single men with a similar education and the same kind of job history. I didn't know that. That's really quite interesting. Health. Marriage experience greater physical and mental health. Uh, quote, marriage provides profound shock absorber, Keller says. That helps you to navigate disappointments and illnesses and other difficulties. In a marriage, spouses hold one another to greater levels of responsibility and self discipline than friends or other family members can. Nothing, Keller says, can mature a character like marriage. And then he refers to children. It says children who grow up in marriage in two-parent families have two or three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not. So Keller concludes that the overwhelming verdict is that being married and growing up with parents who are married is an enormous boost to everybody's well-being, to the well-being of the couples, to the well-being of the children. It's an enormous boost and to society as well. He quotes a sociologist from the University of uh, Chicago that says, the benefits of singleness and divorce have been greatly greatly oversold. Before we leave this topic of marriage, this union that the Bible talks about, I think I ought to just point out something about Scripture. I don't know if you've noticed this. Did you notice that the first part of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, is about a wedding? Adam and Eve were prepared to be married. Did you notice that the last part of the Bible, starting in Revelation 21, is about A wedding? Christ is married to the bride of Christ. The beginning and the end of the Bible itself is all about a wedding. God loves us with a deeply personal love. Like a husband loves his wife. Like a wife loves her husband. What God has joined together, Jesus says... Let no one separate. Because there's something in there. We're driven to it. And there's something about God's character. He's also attracted to it. Do you see that? Marriage. Sort of the, yes, it's union. The union that's involved in marriage. Now when I look at verses 0, 7, 8, and 9, I see the second topic here, the topic of divorce, and this one's a little bit more difficult. I've already pointed out to you that the the Pharisees weren't buying what Jesus said. Why then, if marriage is so special, such a big deal, did Moses command divorce? And Jesus said, you know, what? you really need to read the Bible just a little bit more closely than that, my friends. The Old Testament never ever commands divorce and Jesus doesn't either although on rare occasions both the old testament and the new testament does allow for divorce because you see if marriage is beautiful the union of two people there are two or three things we need to remind ourselves about divorce first of all divorce is unnatural if marriage is natural Divorce is unnatural. Jesus points to that here at the very beginning. He says it was not this way from the beginning. See that in the second part of verse 8. How do I illustrate this? I was thinking of that story. Remember this didn't happen too long ago. Remember the story of Aaron Ralston? Uh, It was an April day in 2003 that Ralston was hiking in the Canyonlands National Park when this huge boulder, weighed something like about 800 pounds, dislodged. He was making his way through one of those little narrow canyons and this boulder dislodged and rolled right up against his arm and and trapped his arm and pinned him against the canyon wall uh, and, and he just absolutely couldn't get out. Now, he made one of those really stupid decisions. He hadn't told anyone where he was going to be. Uh, No one knew where he was, and so there he is, pinned against the canyon wall. Well, for days, I think it was about four or five days, he tried to move that boulder, shoved it and pushed it and worked at it in every way that he knew how. He tried to do everything he could. He chipped away at the boulder. He chipped away at the side to try to get that boulder removed. And, The only conclusion that he could arrive at is I'm never going to move this boulder. If I'm going to get out of here, I'm going to have to amputate my arm. So he began to experiment. He began to make little tourniquets that he would put around his arm to cut off the circulation so he wouldn't bleed too badly if he had to go through this. And he began to make some of those exploratory cuts. And he said, the the horrible reality came to me that even if I cut through the flesh and the sinews in my arm, I've still got a, I've got bones in there. And all he had was what he called this little two-inch knife. He says, what you'd get if you bought a $15 flashlight and you got one of these free multi-use tools that go along? That's all he had. That's all he had to work with. Well, he kept sipping water and he kept trying to stay alive and he kept hoping somebody would come along and it didn't happen and it didn't happen. So on the fifth day, he carved his name uh, and his birth date and his presumed death date. He thought he was going to die that night into the canyon wall and then he videotaped his last goodbye a little cell phone I think so his so his family could hear him say goodbye he really didn't expect to survive the night and guess what he did and so he woke up the next morning and he said I've got to get out of here and suddenly it just occurred to him that in order to do this he was going to have to do the unimaginable he began to leverage against his own arm This is going to be mature rated here to break both of the bones in his arm so he could just begin to work on it. And then after he had broke both of the bones in his arm, then he began with this little knife to start to cut through the flesh and the sinews in order to be able to uncover do his arm so they could free himself. And he finally did after a couple of hours of work, actually, to do that. And then once he had cut his arm free, he had to repel down a 65 foot canyon wall with one hand. He had lost 40% of his body weight. He had lost 25% of his blood volume. And fortunately, on his way out, it was eight miles to his car, he stumbled stumbled onto some campers who called and they helicoptered him out. Now isn't that a horrible story? Isn't that an awful story? I mean, can you just imagine having to do something like that? Why would I tell you that kind of a story this morning in a topic of divorce? And it's just simply this... I want to remind you that divorce in the biblical frame of reference is every bit as awful, every bit as ugly. Every bit as brutal as the story I have just told you. If marriage is about union, divorce is about the ugly, horrible, painful, difficult, mean... There's n- you can't use enough negative terms biblically to describe what divorce does. Don't let your culture confuse you and think there's an easy way out. Don't think this is natural. Don't think this is normal. It is ugly and it is brutal. What would it take, one pastor asked to come to a decision like this decision that this young man made? How desperate would you have to be to cut off a part of your own body? Only when faced with death would a man do such a thing. And so it is with the divorce. It's a desperate act. It's an act of self-mutilation. It's the amputation of a part of ourselves. It is unnatural. And we should only resort to it in the most extreme of circumstances. Well, I think I've made the point. Not only is it unnatural, it's really kind of ugly when you think about it because of what it tells us about ourselves. Divorce, Jesus said, can always be traced to hardness of heart. One pastor put it like this. He says, think of an old bridge over a stream. Imagine that there are structural defects in the bridge that are hard to see. We can imagine that in Minnesota, can't we? There may be hairline fractures that a very close inspection would reveal... But the naked eye to the naked eye, nothing seems wrong. But now you take a 10-ton Mack truck and you drive it over the bridge, and what will happen to the bridge? The pressure from the weight of the truck will open those small hairline fractures so that they can now be seen, and the structural defects will be exposed for all to see the the strain that the truck puts on the bridge. And suddenly, you can see where all the flaws are The truck didn't create the weaknesses. The truck only revealed them. And then he says, when you get married, your spouse is a big truck driving right through your heart. Marriage brings out the worst in you. It does not create those weaknesses, though you may want to blame your spouse by blowing them up. It only reveals your weaknesses it's like an illustration somebody in the Crossroads group I think sent me about a man that goes to see his doctor after having a mild heart attack the doctor takes his wife aside and tells her that the only hope for preventing another probably fatal heart attack is to remove all the sources of stress in her husband's life. You're going to have to cook him three meals a day, he says, and do all the housework and never argue and disagree and be available for romance every night. That's the prescription for your husband's health. And on the way home, the husband asked the wife what the doctor had said to her and after a long pause, she looked him in the eye and said, he says you're going to die. Let 's summarize that to make a marriage work, to make the union work, part of me has to die, doesn't it? To make a marriage work, part of me has to die. To make a divorce work, the relation self the relationship itself has to die. whether divorce or marriage, because of the hardness of our hearts, death is always at work. Death has to occur. To make a marriage good, to end a marriage, death. Which death will we choose? Do you see how Jesus always just sort of gets to the essence of things? Now having said that, I also want to point out here that uh, Jesus does give an exception clause. He says in the case of marital Unfaithfulness, uh, that a a divorce can be allowed. I take the majority of you among Christian interpreters of Scripture that this marital unfaithfulness uh, points to more than just adultery. It points to the it points to the willful, settled desertion of the marriage partner through. Unrepentant adultery, according to Jesus, and Paul adds in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, even abandonment, emotional, physical, uh, abuse kind of abandonment, uh, the Pauline privilege it's sometimes called. It's extreme, it's radical, but there is an exception on those rare occasions. It's permission, it's not a command and yet every time i say that I, you know i, I want to it's like preaching that passage in 1 john chapter 2 verse 1 remember when we preach about divorce it's sort of like my little children i write these things that you sin not don't do it he says but if you sin we have an advocate with the father now is john being lenient or is he just being realistic and he's, i think both sides of the equation are the, that's the way it is when we talk about marriage Don't do it. Don't do it. But, if you do, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There's forgiveness. And Christ always reaches out to us in grace. So, there's marriage and there's divorce. And let's just say a quick word then about the single life. Verses uh, verses 10-11. Uh, Thirteen, I think, give us this description of the single life. And Jesus really tells us just a couple of things. Um, the disciples react to what seems to be a really hard kind of view of marriage. Well, if you've got to get married and you have to stay married no matter what, then maybe we ought not get married at all. And see, that's what some young people are concluding today. Uh, we're just everything that they see about marriage in the movies and in and, and their own families sometimes, and, and and sometimes just the difficulties in our culture, and they're just, they're concluding, well, maybe it isn't worth it. And Jesus then just wants to say, you know, not everybody can receive that word. It's true, He says that there's some people that are genetically coded. Some people are born so that they don't need to be married. They can receive that word. Some people that are coded that way. And then he says there are other people that have been you know, mutilated in such a way that uh, they can receive that word. And so the Old Testament refers to eunuchs. And, and there may be other forms of mutilation. It may be that some people are so psychologically damaged uh, that they find themselves in that category. Uh, they can receive that word. And then he says there's this third group of people. And this is a really interesting one. He says there are some who because of the kingdom of heaven had chosen not to be married and it's that one that I want to park on for just a second. So what he's saying is marriage is natural, and normal, and good, but there are some reasons for being single. And then he says, secondly, whatever genes or circumstances, wherever they might lead, live life in the light of God's kingdom. Uh, and now I'm going to quote to you from a theologian I like to read. His name is Stanley, Stanley Howarus, And he, uh, he argues this way. He says that Christianity was the first religion that ever held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. Now, now think about that. The two people in the New Testament that taught us most about marriage were both single. Jesus was single, and Paul was single, and they taught us most of what we know about marriage. He says uh, So Christians were the only ones that actually held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. He says, Nearly all ancient religions made an absolute value of the family and of the bearing of children. He says, There was no honor without family honor and no real lasting significance without children. Without children, he said, you essentially vanished. You had no future. And then he writes, In ancient cultures, single adults were considered less than fully realized. But Christianity's founder, Jesus, and its leading missionary, Paul, were both single. Thus, singles could not be less fully realized than marriage, because Jesus was a perfect man. And Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 is that some circumstances singleness is the better option, given the surroundings and circumstances we're in. As a result, he says, of this revolutionary attitude, the early church did not pressure people to marry. It saw singleness as another variety of the discipled life, as one more way of, you ready? Dying to self in order to live to God. There's that death word again. And that brings me to my conclusion. It is natural, it is normal, it is good, according to Jesus, to be married. For most of us, this is God's will, and that's never going to change, because God has made us that way, and it's His best way for us to grow. Through marriage, I learn to die to self, and to live to another. Isn't that true? And then the second thing about divorce, about singleness. It's also natural and normal and good for some people to be single. I like the way one young lady puts it. She says, I'm not single because I fear what marriage holds. I'm not single because I'm unwanted or cast off or don't measure up. I'm single because this is God's will for me, and thus it is His best for me, and I will remain single as long as He says so. I like that. Through singleness, I learn to die to self in order to live to another, to God. And then there's divorce. It's always harmful, it's always ugly. It's always destructive to divorce. I wish I could tell you we're different, but it's not. It's like chopping off a limb. It's like tearing out one's heart. God never commands divorce. But sometimes, He allows it. And even when He does, He reminds us that through divorce, I can still learn to die to self and live to another. Everything is not lost. You see, the real essence of Jesus' teaching is that life is not finally about marriage or singleness or divorce at all. It's about listening to God. It's about living for God. It's about learning to grow closer to God. It's about learning to fall in love with God. Some of you know that uh, our staff, typically, when you walk in and you talk to us about marriage counseling, one of the first questions we ask you before we take another step, and this is the key question. Are you still in love with God? Because if you're not in love with God, you'll never be able to remain fully in love the way the Bible says we should with our spouse. So how about it this morning? Are you still in love with God? Because if you are, whatever He calls you to do, you can live that way for His grace and His glory. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is not an easy passage. Many of us uh, come from broken homes, and we know people that do. And it's not our intention to beat up on anyone at all. It is our desire to be realistic, realistic, It is our desire to paint reality as you do. It's our desire to be your children and to follow you in the best possible way you've laid out for us. Lord, for some, that's singleness. For most, it's marriage. For a slight few, it's the ugly, horrible monstrosity of divorce. Whatever you call us to, Lord, we ask that you give us the grace to follow you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.